0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. When should somebody choose to end their life? Now that medically assisted death is settled law here in Canada, more of us than ever before are comfortable asking and answering that question. But a more complicated question is why? somebody would choose to utilize medical assistance in dying, or "made," as it is commonly known. There are the obvious answers. A terminal condition, next to no quality of life, days filled with pain and suffering. These are things that are relatively easy to grasp. But as this law evolves, like any other law, more complex situations arise and the discussions can get much more complicated. Recently, the case of a woman with multiple chemical sensitivity requesting MAID provided an example of just how complicated. This woman's condition was reportedly exacerbated by her living situation, and she could not find any housing she could afford that would accommodate it. She saw no end in sight. So she made her choice. But what if she had a right to affordable housing? What if the government was required to provide it? Would that have changed her mind? Next year, MAID will become accessible for people wishing to end their lives for the sole purpose of mental illness. This will add another level of complexity to these already complicated discussions. But that last word there is key. It's the discussions around the end of life, or more accurately, our reluctance to have those discussions, that makes already tough situations tougher. So, let's talk about that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, this is The Big Story. Dr. Stephanie Green is first and foremost a made practitioner She is also the co-founder and the current president of the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers. Hey, Dr. Green. Hello. I'm glad you could join us today. Um, I think this is a really important topic. And while I know my first question is going to seem like you could probably give a 30 minute answer to it, I'm just going to ask broadly, uh, for those of us lucky enough to not have had to think about this uh, for ourselves or someone in our lives, can you just Explain the basics of the current rules around medically assisted death in Canada. Who is able to access it and how?
1: Sure. So in in Canada, if you want to have an assisted death, uh, you need to meet a number of certain eligibility criteria. And then on top of that, there's what we call procedural safeguards. But essentially what you're asking me is who could qualify for this care? Mm -hmm. So let me just very briefly explain that in order to qualify for an assisted death, you need to be an adult. So over 18 years of age. You need to be eligible for, for government-funded health care, so certainly citizens, but anybody with status in Canada, refugees with status, landed immigrant. Uh, but you can't come from out of country and pay privately is the point. Okay. You need to make a voluntary request for care, so you can't be coerced by anybody else, not a, an angry spouse or a greedy child. It has to be your request yourself, and nobody can make this request on your behalf. You need to have the capacity to make this request, meaning you need to understand what's wrong and what your treatment options are, including palliative care, and appreciate that your decision around this will affect both yourself and those around you. And if you have a full understanding of all of that, articulating a wish to die and give consent, then you meet the capacity and consent requirements. And you need to have what the government calls a grievous and irremediable condition. And that definition actually is, It's broken down in the criminal code of this country, and it says that you need to have a serious and incurable illness, uh, disease, or disability. You need to be in what's called an advanced state of decline in capability or an advanced state of decline in function, no longer functioning the way you used to before your serious incurable illness, disease, or disability. And you need to be suffering intolerably in a way that uh, that cannot be relieved in any way that you find acceptable. So it's a lot. I mean, there's a lot there. It's a very rigorous uh, eligibility criteria.
0: In preparing for uh, this conversation, I read an interview with you recently where you spoke uh, pretty eloquently about our need as Canadians to really, frankly discuss death and dying amongst our family. and And I'll just ask why and and what can happen when we don't.
1: I, I do feel quite strongly that death and dying are uh, part of life. Uh, our lives span from from birth right through death, and all the crazy roller coaster twists in between. Uh, and as a family physician, I'm, I'm trained, uh, you know, I've seen people at every stage of life uh, and in all their glory and all their uh, consternation. Death and dying are very much a part of that. And I, I do believe that we should be talking about all the stages in life and the challenges they're in. That said, I think also after 25 years of practicing medicine, I have had the privilege and also the unfortunate reality of seeing people die in a way that's maybe that would be described as less than good. Mm-hmm. I've seen situations that I think could have been avoided if conversations had happened earlier. I think we all know people that uh, say they want things to go a certain way and then end up in situations uh that have challenged those wishes. You know, the the bulk of people want to die at home. When you do surveys, people say they want to die at home, and yet the majority of people don't die at home. So why is that? It's because we haven't prepared, because we haven't prepared ourselves or our loved ones how to carry out our wishes in circumstances that we can't always foresee. Uh, And it's easy to say and hard to do, but having conversations with loved ones about what you might want in certain circumstances explicitly, not just relying that they know you and what motivates you and what your values are, but what you might want. If you'll excuse me for saying, but if you were hit by a bus mm-hmm. um, and put on life-sustaining uh, treatment, would you want to continue that? And, and many people would say yes. And that's important for your loved one to know. And other people might say no. And that's also important for your loved one to know. So planning for death, talking about advanced directives, making uh, health care plans in advance can only be to the advantage of everyone involved. It, it's a it's a huge burden of responsibility to place on our loved ones when when you find yourself in an emergency situation and they don't know what you would want in a certain circumstance. If you haven't had these conversations, uh, I think it benefits everyone to have these conversations.
0: That's great context for the chat we're having now and especially for the need to prepare. What I want to ask you now is more about the legislation itself, which is fascinating. It's been almost six years uh, since Made became the law. And, you know, you kind of listed the criteria at the beginning of our chat. I want to ask you, like, it, it seems almost impossible to cover uh, the myriad possibilities of the human condition in dying with, you know, a set of criteria. How have you watched uh, this law evolve, change, uh, et cetera, just as, as the medical system, I guess, wraps its, its mind around actually doing it?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the question. It's certainly been a challenge. I think what's most important is to contextualize in very, very broad strokes what happened in Canada, because it's very, it's very unique on a global level. I think Canadians need to remember that our law changed, not because voters demanded it or because government thought it was a good idea, but because of a challenge Uh, a rights-based challenge based on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in this country. And what used to be a a blanket prohibition against assisted dying was felt to be unconstitutional in certain circumstances. The Supreme Court of our country said in the Carter decision in 2015 that if you were an adult uh, who was suffering intolerably with a grievous and irremediable condition, that to have a blanket prohibition of any access possibility to assisted dying was infringing on your charter rights. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that we have a right to this care. It's that the prohibition of it is not legal in this country. So I think that context is important because once that was in place, the government didn't have to create a law, but they felt that it was important enough to regulate this care and not just leave it to the whim of those out there practicing, which is, I think, A good thing to do. What the government did, which people need to understand, is that they created a law, often called C-14, our original law on assisted dying, that was specifically more restrictive than that Supreme Court decision. Hmm. So they've carved out an even smaller uh, possibility of when this was possible. And because it was smaller than the court decision, what happened was that was also challenged because it didn't live up to what the court had promised. And so the changes in our law are not in fact an expansion of our law, but are inching back towards the original court decision. So what we now have in 2021, there was more changes made where they removed some of the restrictive criteria that in place that had been placed by the government to become a little bit closer to the original ruling. Uh, so, I, So what I've seen is this carving out uh, then a more restriction, and then a slight step back towards the original. That's really what's happened in this country.
0: Can you explain uh, what you mean just a little bit by the slight step back towards the original? What changed in 2021?
1: Yeah, thanks. So in 2021, the restriction that the government put into our first law, uh, there was an extra criteria that I did not mention in my overview in the beginning. One of the definitions of a grievous and irremediable condition included, originally, that someone's natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. Hmm. Because you'll notice in the original decision from the court, there was no tying who was eligible to sort of end of life. They didn't need to be terminally ill. They didn't need to be imminently dying. They didn't need to be dying within a certain period of time. That wasn't part of the court decision, whereas other jurisdictions in the world do include that kind of link to end of life. What the government did in C-14 is they added the criteria that a natural death be reasonably foreseeable. Again, not putting a particular timeframe around it, but requiring that the patient be on what we call a trajectory towards death or basically having a predictable death, either temporally, as in it's very close, it's happening soon, or it's predictable due to their medical illness. So that was imposed by the government. And that's what was challenged. And in 2021, that criteria was then removed once again from the eligibility criteria. And by removing that, it of course opened access to assisted dying to patients who weren't particularly on a trajectory towards death. Uh, So it created a new patient population that could access assisted dying in Canada.
0: I'm glad we clarified that because this is kind of what I want to talk about now. And one of the things that I find really fascinating, and I say that for lack of a better term about uh, this legislation, is that there will constantly, of course, be edge cases, right? And there, there will constantly be challenges to uh, what we think the restrictions are. And so I'm going to ask you now, um, maybe not in your role uh, as, as president or co-founder, but just as, you know, Dr. Green, a practitioner of this, did you see or hear about a case recently of an Ontario woman who chose MAID because she had a chemical sensitivity with which was exacerbated by uh, certain types of housing, and she could not find affordable housing that would accommodate it, and she could see no end to her suffering.
1: Yeah, I am. I've read the, the the newspaper reports, the media reports. I'm not intimately familiar with the case, but I am familiar with uh, some of the clinicians involved, and certainly have read what other Canadians have read about that story. And, uh, and 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 you won't be surprised to know that, of course, not all the details can can ever be parlayed accurately in one story. And of course, there's much more to the story than just the housing issue. But yes, I am familiar with that with that case to some degree.
0: What I want to ask you about it is not uh, not necessarily for the details of of that case, because I do take your point. Um, but what I'm curious about is, you know, is there a line between Suffering that certainly has no end in sight and can't be alleviated and is, you know, directly uh, making someone's quality of life so miserable that they would choose this and suffering that, you know, theoretically could be alleviated if the government or someone else would step in with just money when we're talking about making a decision to end your life um, because you can't afford housing. That's one of the reasons a social safety net should exist. No, and I'm just I, I'm just curious as to what you think about this as somebody who is um, so close to this matter.
1: Yeah, well, this case is actually maybe a, a good example. This was this was not just about housing. Um, I, I know what you're getting at, and I'm, I'm happy to address that in just a moment. But I think we need to think even even of patients who are suffering. Let's say even from physical illness that we all see near end of life or, or ne- maybe not even near end of life, there's there's always hope. Mm-hmm. There's always hope that we can do better. There's always hope that we can add more resources or find a new cure or find another pill that might help enough that their suffering would be reduced enough that they wouldn't want to end their life. Right. I mean, I have to tell you that the people I help, whether their death is reasonably foreseeable or not, none of them come to me and say, I really want to die. That's not what I hear from my patients.
0: Yeah.
1: My patients tell me, I would like to live longer, but I, I can't. This is not living. I'm in a situation where I'm suffering intolerably, and this is no longer tolerable for me. This is, this is existing in some way that is intolerable. So I, I always wish that, there's, that they could hang on longer, that I could offer them more, that there's a magic pill that I could offer them. I think what you're getting at is, a, is an issue of, of lack of adequate resources. Yes. And I absolutely agree that society has failed many patients, many people that we don't have adequate community mental health resources. We don't have adequate community disability support services. You know, there's we don't have adequate quality palliative care services in every region of this country. There's no doubt that that is true. I guess my point is that that's going to be true for a long time. There's always going to be arguments about what we can do better, and we can always do better. Mm -hmm. But I don't think individuals should be held hostage to the failings of society. I think we need to work in parallel. I think we need to allow patients to decide when they are suffering intolerably and have been informed of the reasonable and available means that do exist, scant as they may be in certain circumstances. I think they need to be offered those resources. They need to seriously consider them. These are all procedural safeguards that are built into our law. These, these things have to happen actually before someone can be eligible for an assisted death in this country if their death is not reasonably foreseeable. And I think given all of that, all of those circumstances, all of those realities, all of those considerations, we have to trust people to make the best decision for themselves in their own circumstances. The, the case that you comment on, on the woman who had multiple chemical sensitivities is a case in point. Uh, Given the money that was raised for her, given the fact that $10,000 was raised and people were offering to help her with housing, she still decided that wasn't the only issue. She still has symptomatology and signs and issues that would still make her life intolerable. So despite that, she still asked for an assisted death. And I I think it's, again, I don't know the details. I'm sure there's controversy there. But I do think we need to trust people to to make their own decisions if we know they're well-informed and we have offered everything that we can offer.
0: That's a great answer, and uh, not least because it, it provides a nice segue into the next question. Which first, I'm going to ask you to outline because there is another change coming to this legislation uh, in 2023. Can you can you run us through it?
1: Sure. So the. When the changes were made, when amendments were made in 2021, we talked about removing the criteria of uh, natural death being reasonably foreseeable. Now that that has been removed from the law, uh, the government did recognize that new patient populations might step forward to try to access MAID. And and one of those patient populations, to to be generalizing about that, are, are patients who have mental health disorders as their sole, as their only underlying illness. Essentially, these patients were never excluded previously. It's just that if one of the criteria was that your death needed to be reasonably foreseeable, they never really met criteria in the vast majority of cases. And so they never really had access. But now a patient with, say, chronic treatment resistant depression for 20 or 30 years, uh, who may not be imminently dying, but maybe suffering intolerably, could theoretically step forward and apply for MAID. And the government felt Ill prepared to uh, to to deal with this. Felt that maybe this was potentially a more vulnerable uh, type of patient population that maybe needed extra safeguards and more careful assessment. And as a clinician, I have to tell you, I agree with that uh, concern. Uh, so um, what they did was they said that um, uh, patients whose Sole underlying condition is a mental health disorder would not be eligible for MAID for the next two years. But in March of 2023, after that two-year span had passed, in fact, that exclusion would automatically sunset out of the law, and patients would be able to access care. Essentially, they gave themselves two years to address the issue about how to uh, how to approach uh, this uh, particular patient population uh, more carefully. And they set up an expert panel to make recommendations on that. And we are actually actively awaiting that report uh, should be any day now expected out in the month of May, 2022.
0: I'm curious as to what you think of that, just because, you know, the law is the law, which is one thing, absolutely. But, you know, the one thing that we've discussed a lot when we cover mental health on this show and and people have discussed a lot anytime it's brought up is it's just so messy to diagnose and... You know, how to tell when it will respond to treatment, when it won't. And uh, I guess my question um in terms of in terms of the changes to the law is just we still know so little about the brain and the factors that that cause or heal mental health conditions. And it it seems like uh and again, the law is the law, but it does seem like it it's gonna end up in a bit of a quagmire.
1: So I think you've touched on something that's really important to to be explicit about, and that is that. Um, there is less consensus uh, in the public. There's less consensus in the clinical, in the you know, clinicians' worlds about um, diagnosis and prognosis of mental health disorders. I, I agree that there's much we don't understand. I agree that it's not so linear. I agree that if we line up a number of psychiatrists with one patient, we may get a variety of opinions. Uh, and that's, that is a concern. Uh, I think that goes to to the point that we do need to be particularly careful, that we do need to perhaps add some safeguards, that we do need to think very carefully before we step forward to assist uh, patients with mental health disorders. You say the law is the law, and it's true. I, I am not particularly a personal advocate for or against assisted dying. Obviously, I'm comfortable with the concept and I, I'm comfortable carrying out my job. Um, so I don't have a, a personal opinion of whether I believe mental health patients should or shouldn't access MAID is not really relevant to the conversation. I think that it's important as a clinician to always work within the law and to always work to improve the, the program and to set the highest medical standards. And also not just recognize and respect federal law, provincial law, uh, you know, licensing bodies, facility, institutional guidelines, but also personal boundaries. You know, I have my own set of morals and values and I need to respect those. And just because the law allows me to assist someone doesn't mean that I should or will, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of variety there. So I I think, I think that there is a way to do it safely. I think there are models of care in the world that do offer access to assisted dying, to those with mental health disorders as their sole underlying condition. But I would emphasize strenuously, as I've seen in this work, even in in the cases that seem straightforward with people who are dying imminently, um, I've seen that this is really a case-by-case determination. Just because someone has a diagnosis of something doesn't mean they are or they aren't eligible for care. Just because someone has pancreatic cancer doesn't mean they're eligible for MAID. It may seem on the surface like they would be, But that's not the case. There is a very long list of rigorous eligibility criteria that must be met in every patient, regardless of their diagnosis. And that needs to be true in those with mental health disorders as well. These are obviously more complex cases. They will require more time, more digging, more specialist uh, interpretation, more expertise, more careful safeguards. And in the end, I need to be able to sleep at night as well. Mm. But I do think, and I have come across cases Um, of people who have diagnoses that are maybe not well understood or not well served by the medical system today, those with chronic pain syndromes, chronic fatigue syndromes, myalgic encephalitis, things like that, where when I dig into the case and I read the reports and I speak to the specialists and I speak to the patient and their family and their loved ones, and we go through months of work to determine what's going on and why they're seeking care and what's really causing their suffering and trying to address those with with the limited resources we do have there are cases where i've come out on the other side and felt like the legal ramifications the legal criteria have been met the medical criteria have been met and it makes sense in this person's life at this time with their entirety of situation uh, being considered that they that they apply for and they qualify for an assisted death and that i'm willing to do so So I I think it's very complicated. I think every case has to be uh, looked at on a case by case determination. I think that we cannot discriminate against those with mental health simply because they have that diagnosis. And it's very important to keep that in mind. But we do need to be careful.
0: I always like to close when possible with with practical advice, uh, even if the practical advice might not be happy. Um, If somebody listening to this podcast is considering medically assisted death or has a loved one who might qualify and wants to bring it up to them, I guess just maybe set us up for the process. Like, what would you tell them that would help them navigate this world that, you know, you wish more of your patients knew uh, going into it?
1: Well, I think for the loved ones, for the family members, I would say... Be confident to speak frankly, but always ask permission. So if you think this is something that needs to be discussed, maybe ask is, you know, ask your loved one. I'm concerned you might be thinking of end of life. I think it might be appropriate right now or not appropriate right now, whatever you think. But you know, is this something we could talk about? Is this something you would like to talk about with me? Is there someone you would prefer to talk to other than myself that I can help you find? I think staying open, staying curious and asking permission is probably the way to approach the conversation. I think if you're the, the person who's wanting to have the conversation, I would reassure you that, for the most part, clinicians, practitioners, uh, anywhere in the healthcare system, should be able to address your issue. But the truth is, that's not always true. Uh, in almost, I, in fact, in fact, in every jurisdiction in this country at this point, there are made uh, coordination centers and information centers. You can literally Google the name of your city and assisted dying. You'll probably find a website, contact information, um, a line you can call, an office you can contact. Uh, somebody who can give you advice. Um, If that fails for any reason, you can reach out to advocacy groups like Dine with Dignity Canada. You can certainly contact the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. We'll point you in the right direction. We don't do that work, but we'll point you in the direction of someone who can answer those questions for you. Uh, It's important to know that clinicians can refer their patients, but patients can also self-refer for this type of information if they're not getting it uh, where they thought they might.
0: Dr. Green, thank you so much for this. I feel like I really understand this issue a lot better.
1: Thanks for the opportunity to chat.
0: That was Dr. Stephanie Green. And that was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca, find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn, or email us hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And finally, we now have a voicemail box where you can leave us messages that we'll listen to, maybe even play on the show in particular. Our 1,000th episode is coming up in about six, seven weeks here. It'll be on June 20th, and we are looking for feedback from you guys. Why you like this show, why you hate it. Any interesting anecdotes. Did you swerve off the road and into the ditch because you were so gripped by an episode of The Big Story? Did you bond with the love of your life? over an episode on climate change. Did you listen to an episode on taxes and money and save yourself enough to buy a house in Toronto or Vancouver? Just kidding, that's impossible. No, you didn't. So please give us a call, 416-935-5935. That's 416-935-5935. I've always wanted to spout off numbers in a commercial like I'm selling pizza, but we can't wait to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings.